Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Father, I pray you would use these words to teach us, to teach us who you are and who we are in light of you. Father, as difficult as these words may be to hear, I pray that they glorify you. You have them in your word for a reason, and so may we embrace these words for your glory, for your goodness, as we worship you um, now and give ourselves to you as we hear your word. May it enter us, may, may it teach us and guide us, and may you be given the glory that you are due through it by our lives, by our thoughts, and by our words. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. We are going through our summer series, and uh, once a year, once a year I take a preaching course, which is more of like a spring training in baseball. The professionals go to spring training, they learn, relearn the basics, they get back to the basics of baseball. Um, this is the training that I go to usually in uh, September or October, and it's getting back to the basics of trying to understand uh, the best way or how to preach through, exegetically preach through the Word of God. So that's verse by verse, word by word, what does it actually mean? And uh, every year it's a different genre. So last year in October, I did the Book of Psalms. Um, and I've said this like the last couple of weeks, not necessarily my strong point. Poems are not necessarily where my mind goes. Um, but on top of this, um, one of the, the instructors actually said, okay, if you're deciding to go through a, a series for the book of Psalms, usually what, what preachers do is they pick the quote-unquote easy ones, right? The ones like, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Everybody's like, oh yeah, that makes me feel really good. He's like, don't do that. Pick the ones that you've never heard a sermon on. Pick the hard ones. Pick the ones that are going to make you think. Pick the ones that are going to make you struggle. Pick the ones that the people that you're speaking to, it's going to, it's, 
it's not normal, a normal way of reading a psalm, and they've never heard it before, or they've read it and it's just hard to hear. That is this psalm today. Psalm 39 is a lament. And in my experience, it seems like the church, including me, avoid laments. (laughs) We avoid them. What good is there in reading Scripture that is so negative and sounds like a complaint against God? Why would the church need to hear these things? Isn't the world negative enough that we have to hear it at church too? Why in the world would such a psalm be in the Word of God? But that's where I think the church has misunderstood laments and it's sorely missing from our worship of God, both personally and corporately as a body of Christ. A lament is not a complaint, such as a child is upset that they're being disciplined for disobedience, right? Anybody who's a parent gets that. A lament is not negative unless we make it negative. Now, this is going to make your brain hurt, okay? It's not a complaint, and it's not negative. And you said, but you just read that, and there's a lot of negative language in there. Well, my Bible notes explain laments this way. The Psalms that are laments, they express an emotion opposite to that of praise. Now, that doesn't mean like not praise, <laughs> as in like the opposite, um, I'm going to praise you, no, I'm going to tear you down kind of thing, not that kind of opposite. It's an expression, expressing an emotion opposite of praise, but it is still God glorifying. It's an opening of one's heart honestly to God, a heart often filled with sadness, fear, and even anger. With few exceptions, the laments turn to the Lord with confidence at the end of them. And we can learn from the laments of Scripture to better understand how to approach and worship the Lord in the midst of of the difficult circumstances of life. This is where I think the church has failed. Throughout its history, we've forgotten how to lament. Usually it's complaining or it's praise. (laughs) It's negative or it's positive. It's anger or it's joy. Anger in the negative sense, but that's not a lament. A lament is... God, what in the world is going on? And many times in the laments, there's no solution. Have you ever had a time like that in your life? Where things are going wrong, circumstances of life, whether you're in control of it or not, and there's no answer to it. You just have to wait it out and give it to God. That is a lament. Some may say, well, if you express your feelings towards God in the middle of the circumstance, that's doubt, so that means it's sin, and that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, if you are doubting in the sense that God is not in control and He has no way of doing anything in the circumstance, yes, that is sin. But a lament is not a sinful, uh, a doubt that's a sin. It's a, God, I don't see what's going on, but you are God and I trust you but what in the world are you doing? (laughs) Psalm 39 is a psalm of David to a a man named Jejuthun. So when the Ark of the Covenant, if we remember the story, David brings in the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. This is the same, same instance when Michael, his wife, sees him dancing 
because he's so overwhelmed with joy that the ark of God is coming into Jerusalem now. And he's dancing and he's jumping and she puts him down and he says the famous words, I will be even more undignified than this at the worship of God. Well, Jeduthun was appointed by David at that time to lead Israel in the singing of hymns and songs of worship of Yahweh. And so this lament, and that's all, that's all found in that passage. That's not something I made up, okay? So that's found in that passage um, where David um, sings or uh, dances. And so this lament was part, this psalm was part of the normal rotation of songs to be sung by God's people in worship of him. This was not a one-off psalm. This was to be done in the congregation of God's people. And so laments are first and foremost songs for the worship of God, not to lift God's people up, as in like an encouragement in that sense of joy and yay, God is in control. It is, it is to worship God in the midst of a heart that is broken and hurting. And as we'll see today, laments also remind God's people of their place in relation to God. So Psalm 39 is divided into four stanzas. The first stanza focuses on the distress felt by God's discipline. And we'll go into detail of what's really going on here as, the, as, as we go through the psalm. The second stanza is a true self-assessment. And then that self-assessment leads to an acknowledgement in the third stanza that the Lord is the only hope. And then the psalm ends with a cry for God to hear David's prayer of deliverance. And so, so as, let's, let's take one at a time, one stanza at a time. The first one, the distress of discipline. We're never told the details of the circumstances around the psalm. But this first stanza, along with the words of the third stanza, give us a hint. Something has happened which has brought the discipline of the Lord upon David, and he feels the need to guard his mouth with a, mu- with a muzzle. Now, when I first started reading this psalm at the beginning of last week and working through it, initially I thought, somebody has hurt David. Like, there's an enemy. That's a normal psalm of David, right? Um, I think when we were reading through Psalms, we were amazed. There's one psalm where David says, destroy my enemies and kill them, Lord, please. That's usually a psalm of David. Or it's just a psalm of praise. Well, now there is no enemy. It's not that anybody has done anything wrong to David. He's working really hard not to speak about his circumstances. He holds his peace it says, he says to God, I'm holding my mouth. I'm putting a muzzle over me for what you have done, but it's to no avail because as he works to keep quiet, and maybe we can relate to this, as he works to keep silent, his heart becomes hot within him. The fire burns. And as he sighs in his distress, the, burn, the fire burns ever hotter. The more he keeps his mouth shut, the more he says nothing to God, the more he tries to control himself, the more that burning desire to go, what in the world are you doing, God, starts to build and build and build until he can no longer contain himself and he finally speaks. But he doesn't speak, again, to an enemy. He speaks to the Lord. He doesn't begin with a complaint. 
He doesn't even start with a call of worship, but he does a true assessment of himself, a self-assessment. He says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Literally, he's asking God to make him learn and realize how fleeting his life truly is. All of humanity has value because we're made in the image of God. But that value isn't found in our awesomeness, in our intelligence, in our greatness, in our wonder, in our power, in our might. It's found in the creative power of God who made us. And when we compare ourselves to Him, we find that there really isn't any comparison. When we compare ourselves to people around us, we can always find somebody that we're better than. Well, at least I'm not like that person over there. Have you seen their life? You see the decisions that made me? I mean, I, I'm not perfect, God. I make, I make bad decisions. Yeah, I sinned against you, but, but have you seen this person over here? Why are you doing this to me? You should do this to them. But when we compare ourselves to God, then we're all on the same plane. Because in comparison to God, I am but a breath. My time here on earth is short. He says, a few handbreadths. That's the width of four fingers in comparison to the length of God's existence, which is for all eternity. My lifetime, he says, is as nothing before you. We are but a whiff of breeze. <laughs> We're one breath in my lifetime, which is nothing compared to God. In comparison to God, he says, I am but a shadow. And a shadow can do nothing. Shadows are weak and unable to lift even the lightest item. This is the reality of each of us before God. And he concludes the stanza with a similar expression of Solomon in the book of Exodus where he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. That's Ecclesiastes 1-2. David says, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. In other words, surely all of humanity is rushing about in this life for nothing. This isn't to say that uh, nothing we do in this life matters. That's not what he's saying but instead it means that we rush about, we gain wealth, we satisfy ourselves, we live lives of turmoil, and what in the end do we get? We die. And our wealth, quote-unquote wealth, whatever that is, goes to someone else. We've run ourselves ragged all for nothing. And as the next verses reveal, We do such a thing because we've put our hope in ourselves or in the things of this world, the material possessions around us, satisfaction, peace, comfort, our sins. And David is expressing the reality that in comparison to God, all of humanity is weak and every single one of our lives are short. And in that situation in which he finds himself, David reveals that he is his only hope. His only hope is in the Lord. He compares himself to the creator God and he says, I am but nothing. My life is in your hands. And if I have any hope, it's in you. 
And this is, so that's the third stanza. My only hope is in the Lord. If life is so short, and if the things of this world are only vanity, then what is there to wait for? What is there to hope in? My hope is in you. Remember that hope in the Bible is not a wish or desire, it's an expectation. My hope of salvation is in God because he's promised to save me. My hope of joy and peace is in God because he has promised to give me joy and peace. The believer's hope is not a wish, but an expectation of God to accomplish and complete exactly what he has promised. God is not a liar. We heard that in Titus, that he would go back on his promises. My hope is in God because he has delivered me from all my transgressions. That's what David says. My hope is in you. Deliver me from all of my transgressions. David is being disciplined by God for a sin that he committed. And as difficult and painful as this discipline may be, he understands that it is only God who could truly deliver him from his sins. And that the discipline he is receiving from God is good for him. We don't like hearing that. That's really hard to hear. The discipline of God is good. David is recognizing in this lament, this is good for me, God, what you are doing. Now we'll get to the end where he says, can you stop now? I think I've gotten the point. In the midst of this discipline, the urge to defend himself or to tell God that the discipline outweighs the sin, whatever that may be, it's in his mind, David is made mute. He says, I do not open my mouth. And this silence, this muzzle, if you want to use the words of verse 1, remember he tried to muzzle himself and it didn't work, so what happens? God muzzles his mouth for him. He says, it is you who have done it. And we shouldn't take this statement as God literally placing a muzzle on David or making it so that he's unable to literally speak. I mean, he's speaking the psalm. (laughs) So that's not what David is getting at. Remember, this is a poem. He's using metaphorical language. So what is he saying through this? When taking verses 4 through 6 into account, his silence before God is brought about because of the true self-assessment that he made before God. In other words, who is he to question God? It is similar to Job's response to God's question of, and I love this, one of my favorite passages in Scripture in the book of Job. Job goes through, there's like 40 chapters or so where Job is complaining and he's talking to his friends and uh, uh, this back and forth to be this said, well, God finally speaks. And this is what he says to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And Job's response in Job 40, 
He says, behold, I am of small account. Well, sh what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Like Job, David has seen himself in the light of the glory and holiness of God and is found wanting. Who is David to question God? And so it is with God himself, his character and being and glory and holiness, which shuts David's mouth. God has disciplined him because of David's sin, but God has done it. And he's always right in what he, do, what he does. So who is David to question God? The stroke that God has placed on David exacts a heavy cost. For when God rebukes and disciplines, he consumes everything that is dear to him. That's how David describes it. I take this to mean that all those earthly pleasures and desires which are sinful in the eyes of God, those things which are so dear to us, those fleeting pleasures and desires, they are consumed by God. And before we say, praise God, Usually it means we're burned in the process. He takes us through a crucible to remove the impurities from us slowly and painfully and very over long over a lifetime. These things which are so dear to us are consumed by God. And sometimes, in fact, many times, it takes severe and lasting discipline from God to utterly consume those sinful desires from our lives. It's precisely that discipline which reveals God's hostility, not towards David, but towards the sin that David has committed. God takes sin seriously. And so should we who are his children. The ending of this psalm is not one of encouragement or peace or joy, but of humility and submission and reliance upon God alone. His closing words are a deep request of, of our great God when he says, hear my prayer. We would expect suddenly him to go, you will revive me in the end, Lord. You have done this. Praise your holy name. He doesn't say that. In the midst of his discipline and his pain, he says, give ear to my cry, O Lord. Don't hold back your peace from me. See my tears, the distress I am in because of my punishment and my repentance for my sins against you. Look at my heart. See who I am, Father. And David understands that any relief from God's discipline has to come from God alone. And he understands that God is right in doing what he is doing, but he cries out to his Father for relief. Why? Because like David's forefathers, as you can see, he says, my fathers of old, that's Israel. He is completely reliant upon God. Why was Israel chosen to be God's people? 
Why was Israel taken out of slavery in Egypt? Why was Israel sustained in the wilderness? Why was Israel <coughs> excuse me, able to defeat nations bigger and stronger than themselves and then conquer the land of promise? Well, because of God. The land of Israel, or the land that Israel was occupying at the time of David, was not Israel's land. It was God's land. It was God's, and they were but aliens and sojourners, reliant upon God for their safekeeping in a foreign land. And any hope that David has in making it through the hostility of God's hand for his sin is found only in God's grace. He doesn't turn to God and say, you know what, You've suff- I've suffered enough. Don't you think I've earned a little relief, Lord? He never says that. He says, hear my prayer, give ear to my cry, don't hold back your peace from me. There is nothing in these statements that speak of the ability of David to earn such things. He just asks, give me relief. They all have to come from God's hand of grace. And the final verse of this psalm is not what we expect. Again, we expect this joyful upraising, and instead he cries out for God to turn away from him. And this turning away is not asking God to curse him by turning his face away from him. We do the benediction at the end of each service and say, may the Lord shine his face upon you, right? That's a blessing. May God turn his face upon you, give you blessing. That's not what David is saying here. But instead, he's asking, it's a cry for God to remove his discipline. I've had enough, Lord. I stand here as a mere breath. I can only take so much. Give me a bit of peace before I die. There is a sense of despair in these words, but also a self-awareness of his reliance upon God alone for any bit of peace that he might receive. It's a cry for relief and taken with the rest of the words of the psalm, one could say that these were words of repentance. My hope is in you alone, Lord. Hear my prayers and give me relief from your discipline. Show me your grace, oh Lord, show me your grace, please. Now what Can we as God's children take away from such a powerful and descriptive lament? If we walk away from this psalm depressed or discouraged, then I think we've missed the focus of the words. Remember, this psalm was sung in a worship service. In a worship service. And so we should read it as a psalm of worship, not a psalm of discouragement. How do we view God's discipline for our sin against Him? Now, disclaimer, every bad thing that happens does not happen because I have sinned. Now, it's happened because of sin, because we live in a sinful, fallen world. But just because something bad happens to me or or we get a diagnosis of cancer or somebody we love dies does not mean, well, that's because, you know, I've, I've done something wrong. That's not at all what is taking place here. 
This psalm was not written by or for unbelievers. And so the sin that we're talking about is not a sin of unbelief, but a sin of disobedience. And so we need to read this psalm in that view, not just bad things that happen. If bad things happen, yeah, we should, we should search our heart and say, okay, have I done something? Absolutely, but, but that's not a necessarily exactly why things are happening. But when we look at our hearts and we see, hmm, I'm receiving the discipline of God because of my disobedience against Him, then in the midst of God's discipline for our sins, do we see and experience the power and presence of God in us? Do we cry out for deliverance from His discipline and recognize the powerful love of God and His sanctifying us through that discipline? Do we cry out for deliverance from His discipline? Knowing that His discipline is never done wrongly. And in fact, you could look at it as an act of grace that He doesn't destroy us immediately because sin is so abhorrent to Him. And yet as His children, He says, nothing will remove you from my hands. Nothing will remove me, you from my love. But that does not mean I will not discipline you. It's like a good earthly father who would give his life for his child. And yet when that child sins, when that child disobeys, there are consequences. And a good father disciplines out of love, not out of anger and hatred, but to teach and to grow. So it is with God. Discipline exacted to us by God is never done wrongly. And anyone who is a good parent can look back on mistakes that they made in disciplining their children, right? As a parent, you look back and you're like, oh boy, that was a mistake. (laughs) That did not turn out like I expected. But you know what? God never does that. He never makes mistakes. His discipline is always right. His discipline is always good for us as His children. His discipline puts us in our place in relation to God to remind us He is God and we are not. But it also teaches us that we are totally reliant upon Him for deliverance from our sins and for the peace we pray comes afterwards. Or you could even say we are totally reliant upon Him to sanctify us, to make us more like Him so that in the future we don't disobey Him and give Him glory. Instead, give Him glory with our lives. And so to once again use the words of Job in Job 42, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, Job didn't literally see the Lord. He saw the Lord through the discipline that he received. And through his suffering and despair, Job came to know God more deeply by experiencing and seeing the Lord as his Savior and God. And his despising himself is not a negative self-talk. Instead, it's a realization that God is God and he is not. In comparison to, to God, we are all despised. We're nothing. God is the creator. Job is the created. God is the creator. We are the created. And like Job, like David, 
We too who are God's people are fully reliant upon God for salvation and deliverance from our sins and his discipline of us is always good and always right in the end. And hopefully we will be able to see that. In other words, God is disciplining us. God is sanctifying us for sins that we've committed against Him because He loves us. And because we are His children, our value is found in Him, not in us, not in the things of this world, but in Him, in Him alone. And so my hope is that the next time we come across a lament in Scripture that we don't quickly read over it. There's no conclusion to this. There's no like resolution, right, to this psalm. It's just sitting there. And I, I think that's good. Sit in it. Chew on this psalm. Chew on a lament. Feel the spiritual, emotional, and physical heaviness of God's Word. Because there's going to be times and circumstances in our life when there is no other answer for us but to lament. And perhaps we would be like David and feel the weight of God's discipline for a sin that's, that we committed against him. Or perhaps we'll be like Job, having a burden or circumstance put upon us that is completely out of our control. We like to, when we read the book of Psalm, we like to read the beginning skip the 38 chapters or 36 chapters in the middle and then jump to the end because he gets double what he, what he had before, right? We're like, see? See, well, yeah, that's, that's an exception, not a rule. And if we skip the middle of Job, we're missing constant lament by Job. Now, in the middle of that, Job says some stupid things about God, which is why he has to repent. But his circumstances, his children dying, him getting boils all over himself, having a nagging wife telling him, just curse God and die. None of that was his fault. He had no sin against God. God instead gave Satan permission to make Job suffer. Try to explain that to somebody who thinks that everything is joyful about the word of God. That's real life. Things happen in our life that we have absolutely no control over. We didn't sin. And yet we're suffering. We're hurting. We have a burden upon us that's completely out of our hands. Well, that's where the Bible comes in. Lament. To lament is to remind us who we are in God We are his children. And whether whether we're receiving or having this burden, the circumstance upon us because of our sin or because the sin of someone else, God is going to use that. We need to remind ourselves, God's going to use this to sanctify me, to make me more like him, to reveal his glory and his goodness through it. To remind me that my only hope is in him. And you hear it from up here. I give you, no, God gives you permission to say, 
can you stop, please? <laughs> please, God, end this. End this. I think I've told this story of, um, I had a, a wisdom tooth taken out. Well, I don't know, it was like 10, 12 years ago, something like that. Um, and I got dry socket. Anybody ever had dry socket? Yeah? Oh, yeah, you're feeling it, aren't you? Yeah? Okay, so I got dry socket, which means usually you get a tooth taken out and you have to have the gauze in there and then uh, the blood clots. And what that clot does is it actually covers up. Is this too gross for you? Too bad. Um, it covers up the nerve endings in your jaw. Well, when you get dry socket, that, that clot doesn't form. It pops out and your nerve endings are exposed. Not fun. In fact, I, I had that and we had like a youth, a youth fundraiser. We're selling pies. I'm sitting in the back and I'm not there. I mean, I'm there. I kind of know what's going on, but I am, I am in so much pain. I am taking Tylenol and ibuprofen inappropriately right? Like so much of it, my doctor would say, are you going to die now kind of thing. And my friend, one of my friends saw it and he's like, you know what? I've got morphine at home, like a, something like that, some really hardcore prescription drug. He's like, it's a pain reliever. I can give you one. Or you, I said, go get it. And he got it. I popped it. It did nothing. It is so painful. I remember sitting there at home crying, literally crying in pain, saying, Lord, end this. I never said end me because I kind of like my life. <laughs> I never got to that point, but it was, God, end this. I am in so much pain and there's nothing I can do. I called the doctor. They said, suck it up. Called the doctor again, found out the dentist is out of town on vacation. So you got to wait like three days in pain and that's the closest I've ever been to such a, a deep despair. And then the funny thing is a year later, I had it done and it happened again. Now, I learned my lesson. I immediately set an appointment actually afterwards, I think, to go in and have the dentist fix it. But that was out of my control. There's, there's times in our life we are so full of despair, we have nowhere to turn but God. And I cried out to God. I remember crying out to him. And guess what he did? He did not give me relief. At least not for a couple of days. It was a humbling experience for me. It was not a fun experience for me. I didn't walk away after that prayer saying, man, God is so good. I, man, I'm just so excited. God has so filled me with joy. And I'm like, seriously? You're not listening to me? Like, what have I done to deserve this? Why, God? Why would you do this? Now, you look back on it, you're like, I didn't lose a child, right? I wasn't diagnosed with cancer. But in the moment, it's overwhelming. My grace is sufficient for you, was the words that constantly came to my mind. And I'm like, that's great, God. Can you give me relief while I remember that your grace is sufficient for me? And he said, no. Three days later, the dentist fixed it. I could have given him a big giant kiss. I was so excited. It was an instant relief. But for three days or so, I had to suffer. Those are times in our, there are times in our life when we have to do that. 
And can we say, I am a child of God, and I'm going to lament before you, but I'm never going to lose my faith in you. Should this take my life, you are still good and you are still God. You may destroy me, God. Maybe my fault or someone else's fault. But in the end, I am your child and I am with you. But give me relief, Father, please. My life is so short. Show me grace so that I might glorify you with my life whether in suffering or not in suffering because my only hope is found in you. Father, I pray that we would sit in these words and lament in our life, Father, that we would not lose sight of who we are in you and no matter what the circumstances that, Father, we would, even in the midst of suffering, that we would turn to you and beg for relief but never lose our faith. Remind us of these words, Father, of David. May we find encouragement from them. May we never doubt your power and your goodness and your grace and glorify you even in the midst of difficult circumstances. For you are our God and we are but created beings. (laughs) And as your people, uh, Father, we are called to worship you no matter what to give you the glory that you're going to use it, whether it's discipline for sin or it's just living in a fallen world. You never change. You were always good. You were always right. And we glorify you for that, Father. And we could stand as your children in that. Remind us of that, Father, as we live, strive to live this life for you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song together?